You guys, I'm excited because today we're going to start a sermon series in the book of Philippians, which is like one of those, I don't know, it's like one of those really quotable books of the Bible. Um, Maybe you grew up in a tradition where you did memory verses or something like that. If not, there's like a lot of great memory verses in here. So like there's the don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God one. There's press on towards the upward call of Jesus. There's, I am confident that he who began the good work within you will continue that work until the day Christ Jesus comes back again. There's, I consider my worldly gain as rubbish compared to knowing Jesus. Um, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. There's all these verses in this little tiny book of Philippians, and we're gonna explore it and unpack it over the next few months together. There's stuff on unity, and humility on Jesus' great self-emptying of his divine rights to give himself for our sake. I mean, so there's rich theology in there. There's comfort. There's convicting challenges. There's moral insight. And Philippians is loaded with good stuff that we're going to uncover together. Now, as a way of introduction, because that's what really this sermon is, is just introducing the book, I'm going to give an overview of kind of how we should approach digging into Philippians, and we're going we're gonna to look at the first 11 verses of the book. But first off, I just want to clarify one thing, uh, and that is that this thing that we call Philippians, this book of the Bible, is actually not really a book. It's a letter. Um, it's a letter from a man named Paul and his apprentice Timothy to a church in a city called Philippi. Now, I have in my hand a printout of a letter that I scanned. This is a letter from my grandparents. Um, My grandfather was a prolific letter writer, and usually grandma would tack on a few uh, paragraphs at the end. Um, My grandfather would write, at least for the last 10 or 12 years before he passed, um, a letter a month to every grandchild uh, that he had. And so I scanned them to keep them safe, and I... Brought, brought one here. This particular letter is from 2014, and it's kind of typical of the correspondence that my grandparents would send. They lived in Louisville, Kentucky. You have to say Louisville, not Louisville or Louisville. It's Louisville. And, um, and you know, the, their letters would always begin with some kind of news from home, usually something about the weather. On this particular day, it was this wild weather event with lightning and dark clouds and hail that drifted up to 10 inches in some places. That's a lot of hail. Um, they speak of some house guests that they were having over. They, they give news of my cousins who live, live locally to them. Uh, they rejoiced in the news that my sister was expecting uh, a second child, and they had just found out it was going to be a girl. Uh, so that was kind of fun to reread these. And then at the end, Grandma gets on there with her scribal hand, and she says, I pray God's best for you all, and here is a dollar for each precious granddaughter. Yes, she always gave a dollar to the kids. That's funny. So, my, I mean, my, my grandparents are faithful followers of Jesus for as long as I've ever known them. Uh, they wrote letters to me who am a trying to be a faithful follower of Jesus, so it's like Christians to a Christian. Um, why don't I ever do sermon series on this letter or these letters from my grandparents, right? Why am I taking time to pe- preach one of Paul's letters to a church in a completely other part of the world that's nearly 2,000 years old. What makes Paul's letter scripture and more relevant to us than this letter from my grandparents just eight years ago 
to a much more familiar context or any letters of encouragement that you may have had. Well, I just kind of want to go over that. There's three main reasons why the letters, like Paul's letter in, in Scripture, is Scripture, and my, bless their souls, my grandparents' letters are not Scripture. Um, the first re- reason is that it's the authorship. It's, like, it's the author of Philippians is Paul, and he's a recognized apostle of Jesus. And that means that Jesus has authorized him as his agent to speak on behalf of Jesus. So apostles like Paul had the authority to represent the Lord to people. But the second thing, and because there's some New Testament letters that we don't know who wrote them. Um, so the second and almost more important thing is that the Philippians uh, is considered scripture not only because it's attributed to Paul, but because it's one of the letters that the early church circulated and pondered and recognized as authoritative for roughly two centuries before all of these councils and bishops decided on the final canon or the final like what's in and out of the Bible. It was one of the letters that the churches passed around uh, the known world and used in their worship gatherings. It's represented all over the known world, whereas opposed to other books that didn't quite make the cut, like much later books like uh, the Gnostic Gospels and things like that, churches didn't really use those in worship because they didn't sound anything like the Jesus of the Gospels. But the third thing is that this letter from Paul has timeless relevance to us. My my grandparents' letter, uh, their letters have relevance to me. I knew them and I loved them and sometimes it's nice to go back and to, to see their handwritten letters, but the weather on a spring day in 2014 doesn't really change my life. And the news about how busy the streets were during the Kentucky Derby isn't something that I'm going to preach about to you unless it's like an illustration to expound on scripture. So, so you might be wondering then, well what possible relevance does a 2,000 year old letter written in another language to another people of a very different time and culture have for you and for me? Okay, well I have at least four reasons, if note takers wanna take notes, I have four reasons why Philippians has direct relevance to us. Uh, and the first is that this is a letter from an apostle of Jesus to a group of people trying to follow Jesus in the real world. In the Gospels, for example, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in the Gospels we get wonderful ideals and teachings of Jesus, things that say like, um, love your neighbor, and pray for those who persecute you. Um, we get high ideals of God's kingdom and devotion to Jesus and, and the promise of the Holy Spirit. I mean, the Gospels have all that stuff. But then when you actually try and live that out in your real life, it's like, where's the guidance? Like, how do I actually do this stuff when I'm really angry or when I've been harmed or oppressed or abused? Like, how do I actually love my enemies? It's in these letters, like Paul's letter to the Philippians, that we get to listen to an apostle help people live out the way of Jesus in the messiness and complexity of a morally gray world. Like there's very little black and white in terms of, uh, of right and wrong, at least how we actually perceive it in the world. The world is messy and gray, and how do we nuance out following Jesus? These letters help us to do that. Second, this letter is relevant because it speaks 
to a church that struggles with its allegiance to Jesus versus its allegiance to government or culture or the, the things of, of the world that they live in. Philippi was having problems with that. In the last 10 years, we have seen a massive polarization in politics, not only in our nation, but in much of the world, right? Like, recently, France and Great Britain have both held elections in which parties seem more extreme on the right and more extreme on the left than they have in my recent memory. And the church has struggled in knowing how to navigate all this. Where do we fit? In Russia, some major leaders of the Russian Orthodox Church have supported Putin's actions in Ukraine, while in America, many self-professed followers of Jesus seem to side with various political parties rather than following the way of Jesus. So this is a real struggle in real time, and it was for the Philippians as well. And so I think that Paul is listening to him, and his advice to them is going to give us some help in our real situation. Now, to understand the situation in Philippi would help us to see it in context. So Finley's going to throw the first map up, and we're just going to get our bearings of where this place is. So this map is a modern map with modern political boundaries. And so you can get your bearings there. You see Egypt. Everyone kind of knows where Egypt is. There's the Mediterranean Sea right above it. And if you just look to the right of Egypt, that little strip is Palestine. So you've got Israel and Jordan and uh, Syria and all these places. And if you just go straight above Egypt to Greece, it's Greece and Macedonia is where we're going to look at. Finn, let's put up the next map. And we're just still mentally, we're in the same place. We just zoomed in a little bit more. And I want you to just take a snapshot in your head. And Finn's going to put up the third one. There it is. Now, this is the same geography, but this is the Roman map from, from the first century. So different names because it was in the Roman Empire. And Macedonia is where we are looking. In fact, is it better on here? So Philippi is right up, right by Thrace, right to the left of Thrace there, and that is where we are talking about. You'll notice that Philippi is in what, what, what place, what region? What's that called? Macedonia, right? Macedonia. It's named after Philip the Great of Macedon, Philippi, Philip the Great, right? So that makes sense? So Philip the Great was from Macedonia, so we get the city Philippi, and it was formed as a city as a military outpost to guard some nearby gold mines. Because if you have a gold mine in your empire, that is the cash cow for buying, well, it's your war chest, right? So you can go conquer more people. So that's what Philip of Macedonia was doing. He was fortifying Philippi to guard a bunch of gold mines. Philip the Great, by the way, is the father of Alexander the Great. We've heard of Alexander the Great, right? And so Philippi is wealthy, and it's rooted in the history of some great men, or at least historically great men. I'm not so sure their character was that great, but that's a different conversation. Okay. So that's where Philippi comes from. Now, there's more. In the second century BC, Philippi became a Roman colony. It was in Philippi, this city that Paul's writing to, that Octavius, who would become Caesar Augustus, does that sound familiar? Like the guy in charge when Jesus was born? Okay, Octavius and Mark Antony, Cleopatra, Mark Antony, okay, a little history lesson, right? These two guys held a battle against the people that assassinated Julius Caesar, the Republic 
in Philippi is where that decisive battle was fought and won by Octavius who became Augustus and historians say oftentimes that that battle and that place is where the Roman Empire began. So track with me. The people of Philippi come from a rich history, Philip the Great, Alexander the Great, and then the origins of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was the reigning world power when Paul's letter to the Philippians was written. Paul is writing from a prison cell governed by the Roman Empire when he's writing to the Philippians. The empire was run by an emperor who called himself, checked out these titles, Lord and Prince of Peace, and he claimed to be the Herald of Justice. Okay. Now, imagine you are from Philippi, you've got all this civic pride, Look at all the history here. We've got gold mines. The empire's from here. We're pro-empire. And then all of a sudden, you have this experience where you're following Jesus, who calls himself the Prince of Peace and the Lord, and who came to bring justice. Now, can you see the tension that a Philippian person might be living with? All of the civic pride, but now I'm worshiping this one I'm calling Lord. You can't have Lord Jesus and Lord Caesar. They don't go together. And so there's this, this tension that they're living with. Can you understand the temptation that a Philippian might feel to be fooled into thinking that the Roman Empire might offer you a slice of justice and prosperity even though you've sworn allegiance to Jesus, whose ways are not of power, but of the cross, and not of elitism, but of love and humility. That's a tough tension to walk in. And that's the political situation to which Paul is writing. And it's extremely relevant to us today if you haven't put that together yet, right? Like, let's not make the mistake that the decadence of our American way of life is in any way the same thing as the kingdom of God that Jesus is talking about. Let's not assume that certain legal decisions are the same thing as the changing of people's hearts and minds, right? The, the letter to the Philippians encourages us, amidst all of the, um, the opportunities and all of the distractions of empire, it encourages us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. And the second thing is that Paul's letter to the Philippians is relevant to us because Bellingham and the Pacific Northwest, what we're part of Cascadia, which is basically Oregon up to Vancouver, BC, right? It, it, we're, we live in a pluralistic society. And, and that means that Philippi is a lot like Cascadia in the sense that there were lots of, it was a hotbed of ideas and religions and philosophies all coming in and through Philippi. It was on a major trade route. It was affluent. It was wealthy. Philippi was a Greek-speaking population in a Latin-speaking Roman Empire with religious influences from Egypt and Greece and Rome, local deities from Asia Minor. It's not all that different from Seattle or Vancouver or Bellingham in the sense that it was far from assumed that when somebody said God, they're all thinking about the same thing. Or goddess, there's a multiplicity of them. Or 
agnosticism. There's just, there's, everything's on the table. Very pluralistic society, a lot like the place that we live. And so Paul is speaking to this people who are trying to be the church in that setting. I think we have a lot to learn from, from uh, what he has to say. In fact, Paul intentionally took this apprentice Timothy with him uh, when he first visited Philippi. And the reason he did that is because Timothy is a person of mixed cultural heritage. His mom was Jewish, his dad was Greek, um, and he could speak both Hebrew and Greek. He could flow in and out of a pluralistic society much better than someone who was trained as a Jew and raised uh, to be a, um, a Pharisee, a rabbi like Paul was. Philippians can show us, I think, how to relate to a pluralistic society rather than run from it. And I think that's an important lesson for the church to learn. Third, Philippians is relevant because it's written to a group of Jesus followers who are a minority group in their city. In fact, when Paul first visits Philippi, they don't even have a Jewish synagogue there. It's so small of, of a population that he looks for them at a prayer meeting down by the river. Okay, sorry, it's a little Chris Farley, but like, they, he looks for the prayer gathering down by the river because it's so small, there's no building, there's no, and so it, it's there that Paul meets Lydia, who becomes a follower of Jesus, and she begins to host a house church in her, in her estate. And so it's just this real small gathering of people. And here in Cascadia, less than 6% of the population is, is Christian. And so Philippians is a letter to people who have many of the same concerns and challenges that we do. And Philippians will also show us that more than challenges, this is a fantastic opportunity for us to, to live our faith out in authenticity. Um, I've often thought, that I, I wouldn't really know how to pastor in, I don't know, the Bible Belt, like where everyone is, it's a kind of a cultural Christianity. I'm sure God would give me grace to figure it out. Um, but I'd much rather just be here where I just know who I'm talking to. <laughs> you know, it's like just easier, like where are you at? Um, and, and I think Philippians can really help us to figure that out. So I'm excited to dig into this letter with you. Thank you for... Um, for some of you, history is like, oh, give me more, and some of you are just like, wake up now, because now we're gonna get into the scripture. So uh, to help you wake up, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? I'm gonna just read the first 11 verses of Philippians. And here's how it goes. Paul and Timothy, bondservants, or that's another way of saying slaves of Jesus Christ. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partners of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, 
so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Thank you, Lord, for this word. Would you open it to not only understand with our minds, but to live with our lives. Amen. You may be seated. This introduction, these 11 verses are, I mean, absolutely packed with theological terms. But what I'm going to do this evening, just in case you're like, oh my gosh, he's just starting to preach. No, (laughs) don't worry. It's over, halfway over. Um, What I'm going to do is just do an overview because what this section, these 11 verses actually is, is sort of a introduction to the rest of the book. And so every concept that Paul brings up in these first 11 verses, he's going to unpack in a lot more detail later on in the letter. So I'm just going to follow Paul's lead, and when we get to these concepts later in the letter, that's when I'll really dig down and we can get all crazy with theological terms and and word studies and all that stuff. So what I'm going to do is just the overview, and I'm going to point out three elements of the introduction that highlight significant themes in the letter. So we're just going to just focus on three things, okay? We can do this. We can do this. The first is the opening salutation, the first two verses. I can do a whole sermon on this. I won't. In the ancient Mediterranean world, there was a fairly set formula of how to write a personal letter, all right, so, so Finley's going to put up the first slide, uh, and typically, a, a, the salutation of a letter in f- the first century Greek-speaking world uh, consisted of three main words in a particular order. Okay, so you've got the name or the names of the sender and their position in life. So, um, you know, it might be uh, Emily, nurse practitioner, cardiac, or, you know, whatever her position is, or m- awesome mom, or whatever it is. Um, uh, so that's, so you'd have, you know, usually it's like, dear Chad, how are you? You know, and then I would sign my name at the bottom. That's how we write an English letter. In the Greek-speaking world, it would start with who's sending it, okay? Um, so you've got the name of the sender, then the name of the recipient or the recipients, and finally, the third piece to every greeting would be the greeting, which you can see in the parentheses there, it's, it's this, that's a transliteration of a Greek word, carrying, okay? So just remember that. Now, so Finley, let's put up the next slide, and let's see how this would play out. If this was a normal letter, um, we would have Paul and Timothy, apostles of Jesus, because you want to put your title out there. You want to say, like, what authority do you have to be writing to me and to be saying the things that you're about to say? To the church in Philippi, greetings, caring to you. Okay, that's what normally, like, a normal letter would have. Okay, but from the very beginning of this letter, Paul wants to model Christ's likeness, and so he encourages the, he wants to encourage the Philippians, and he wants to communicate the gospel all in two sentences, all in these first three words. And he does this by taking the standard greeting that normal people would expect, and he alters each line ever so slightly. So, instead of writing Paul and Timothy, apostles of Jesus, he gives them the titles of slaves of King Jesus. In fact, Finley, let's put the next one there. So, here's how he changes it. Paul and Timothy, not apostles, but slaves of Christ Jesus. Christ is 
the Greek word for king or for Lord or Messiah. Okay. And he, 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 he just slightly changes it, and, and what he's doing is he's communicating humility to the Philippians. He's saying our leadership or our authority comes from a place of subservience to Jesus. Oh, it says Chris Jesus, doesn't it? <laughs> That's what you're laughing at, yes. I once signed a grad paper in theology class, Christ Eltrich, which my professor had fun at. Uh, yeah, I said, very confident. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, sorry about that. I'm glad, uh, it's humility, just <laughs> leading with humility. There it is right there. Um, so if it, what they're trying to say is if we have any authority to speak to you, Philippian church, it's because of our, uh, that Jesus is our master, not because we're your master, okay? And then they greet the Philippians, rather than saying to the church at Philippi, they greet the Philippians as saints in Christ Jesus, including the overseers and deacons. Now, oftentimes letters to a community or to an organization would be directed towards those in positions of power. Okay, uh, so if I was writing to an ancient family, let's pick a big family like the Wilson family, um, I would say, you know, Chris to the Wilson, to Christy Wilson, because she has the power. No, I'm just kidding. It would be Nathaniel. He'd be the paterfamilias of the family, and it would be to him and everyone else to just be like, yeah, we're in our positions. Um, oh, and so normally if you're writing to maybe a, to a church, you would address it to the elders of the church, and then everyone else would get to listen in, but Paul doesn't do that. What he does is he writes to the saints, which is a fancy word for all the holy ones, every Christian, every man, every woman, every child. So he's really flattening things out. He's writing to the whole church, and then to not disrespect the office of leadership, he also says, and to the deacons and to the overseers, right? So he's not, he's not taking away the importance of those positions of leadership, but he's just saying, you know, this is to everybody. It's to everybody. So Paul's already altered the standard greeting by humbling himself and lifting up the whole church of all ages, but he's not done with the gospel yet. Because in the standard greeting, the author would offer greetings, that caring word, but here Paul offers charis. Sounds really similar. Say caring, and then say charis, and then you can imagine in Greek they look really similar, just minus a few letters. One means greetings, the other means grace. And Paul theologizes that normal greeting and he says grace and peace. Some of you who've maybe received emails from me know that I often sign off as grace and peace to you. That's not just like Christianese fluff. Like I really have taken a cue out of Paul's blessing here. I really want to bless. That's a whole other sermon, but like your words can bless or curse. I encourage you to use them wisely. And so like Paul, what he's saying is grace to you and peace, that's a, that's a Hebrew, shalom, that's a Hebrew way of blessing people. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In two sentences, he has communicated so much gospel, humble leadership, raising up of every man, woman, and child in Christ, and blessing them. I mean, you could, bam, I could walk away right now, that'd be a great, just, ah, sermon, okay. Um, the greeting sets the whole tone for the letter. And, and basically, it would, if you're reading this as a Philippian, you're saying, this letter is not meant to control me. It's meant to bless me in Christ. And now I'm gonna be open to it. <sighs> okay. That was the first of three. Ready? Two more. One, here, here goes. Second thing. Paul 
Paul gets in this second part to what I think is the major theme of the entire letter. I hope you don't check out for the next few months, but if you had to, you're getting the whole theme of the letter right here. Um, I think it's partnership in the gospel, which is what our sermon series is titled, Partners in the Gospel. See, the church is made up of people who are partners in the work of Jesus. Paul's writing from prison, and as we're going to see later in this letter, the Philippians had sent financial help and even sent someone to go to Paul. It, we'll talk about this again later, but just refresh your course. In ancient prisons in the Roman world, you didn't have meals, and like no one would take care of you. No one. So if you wanted to eat, your family or friends had to come and bring you food. If you wanted your jacket, uh, if you're cold, people had to bring that stuff for you. So the Philippian church, uh, church sends this guy, Epaphroditus, to come and to help Paul and to check in on him and to support him and encourage him. And they bring a financial gift as well. Because as you can imagine, where there's not much guards, there's kind of a black market going on, and you got you know, this is crazy. You've all seen prison shows, they're crazy. So he's gotta have money to do stuff and to get by in prison. And the Philippians have really partnered with him in that. Paul thanks them twice, once in verse five and once in verse eight in just this opening, and he uses the Greek word koinonia, say it with me, koinonia. Koinonia, which is translated as participation, partnership, fellowship, or mutual partaking. Now, usually we use that word fellowship really loosely in our modern parlance. Fellowship means, oh, that's when we hang out and we have coffee or we hang out and have a beer or something like that. That's, that's not what fellowship, if, fellow, if you want to use that word fellowship, think fellowship of the ring, where we're going to Mordor together. Like, you know, we might die doing this. That's kind of what fellowship in this parlance is talking about. It is, we are in it together. And that's what the church is. That's what we are to be, is a group of partners mutually invested in the business of Jesus, working together and sharing resources, sharing life together, worshiping together, which is what we're doing, and growing together. We share in the suffering and in the joy. That's what it means to be partners in the gospel. Now, Paul is gonna flesh this out later in his letter, but for now, I want to impress upon us a universal phrase of good news. Verse six. For I am confident of this very thing, that he, speaking of Jesus, who began the good work in you, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That is the day when Jesus reappears and bring his kingdom in full. Paul is writing to encourage the whole church, the followers of Jesus who see hardship and persecution, many who have succumbed to temptation of the world around them. Like us, the Philippians failed and failed and failed, and like many of us, many of them were living in shame and feeling defeated and wondering if they still fit in the church and wondering if they still fit with this community when they had doubts and they didn't see eye to eye with everything and they were confused about scripture. And so Paul reminds them that their salvation and your salvation is not anything of their own doing. It is the work of God. It is a work of God that God began and is a work that God promises to complete. 
And we're only at the introduction of this letter, but if you ever get anything from this sermon series, it's that your salvation is from God, and it is God, not your performance, who will bring that into completion. And if you come away receiving that, then you will have received a magnificent grace. Because once we receive the good news that our following Jesus is a gift of Jesus, sustained by Jesus, perfected by Jesus, then we're going to be free from beating ourselves up and we'll be free to partner with each other in the gospel of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Cool. All right. Number three. We're almost there. We're going to land this thing. Okay. The third and final element that I want to highlight in this introduction is Paul's prayer for the Philippians. The Philippians lived in a pluralistic religious culture, right? They lived in a culture that was sexually permissive, spiritually oppressive, highly discriminatory towards non-Romans and Jews and women. Oh, it's a lot like places in America. But anyway, it's a, it's a, it was a highly messed up place to be. And I want you to notice what is not in Paul's prayer before we look at what is in Paul's prayer Paul does not pray a prayer of antagonism or praying against certain groups of people or against certain ideas. He isn't calling for the downfall of other people because Paul, I think, knows that judgment is God's and God's alone. That's not our role as the church. But what he prays is that the church, those who profess to follow Jesus, he's not like putting this on everybody, but those who profess to follow Jesus, he prays that we would abound in love that is informed by knowledge and discernment. Notice that, like, I don't know, like my default, even though I know better when I think of love, is fluffy feelings or sexual feelings or cuddly father feelings, and it's almost all feelings. That's my initial. And what he says is, I want your love to be informed by knowledge and discernment so that you will know the difference between things worth being exalted and valued and honored and things that are false. And then he prays that they would they would be sincere and blameless in their faith, that they would bear the fruit of righteousness that is akin to the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. So he's basically praying that they would experience love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. And all of this through the power of Jesus, not in their own strength. He doesn't say like, he doesn't like, I pray that you guys would get off your butts and do better. (laughs) Or I pray, you know, like, you know, you've prayed with people like that before who like basically are trying to tell you a sermon and their prayers, like, who are you talking to? But he's actually talking to God who has the power to do these things. He says, God, I pray that the church would be filled with this fruit of righteousness, that you, God, would bear that fruit in people. That's gospel, that's grace. And I want to encourage you this week as a kind of a closing thought to pray this prayer, Philippians 1, 9 through 11, to pray this prayer for the people in your life 
who follow Jesus. Pray it for this church. God, we need it. Pray it for the church around the world. God, we need it. Um, and, and I just wanna close this sermon time by praying that prayer over us. Is that okay? So if you're comfortable, close your eyes, hold your hands up to receive or whatever is a posture of receiving this good thing that Paul has for us. This is my prayer, that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight to help you determine what is best so that in the day of Christ you may be pure and blameless, having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory of and praise of God. Amen.